And now it's time for the Wild Side News with your host, Sydney Wildsmith. There's some terrific news that's changing the way we think about the wild creatures. And it's about time. Hopefully, it's not too late. We'll take a look at the morphing nature of anthropomorphism and then head into the deeper worlds of the wild creatures. Head outside, and what do you hear? Birds. They're everywhere. And the way we know it is by their songs and calls. Today, we talk with one of the world's leading experts on bird song. It just seems the more we know about the wild creatures, the more we'd better start listening. Here, on your Voice of the Earth, the Wild Side News. Welcome back to the Wild Side News, and now, Sydney Wildsmith. Today, we spend most all of the show talking with one of the world's leading birdsong experts, Dr. Donald Krutzma. He has a wonderful new book out published by Houghton Mifflin, The Singing Life of Birds. Now, most of you are probably a lot like me. I'm fascinated by bird calls, and I've made some efforts to try to learn them because it's an unbelievably powerful new awareness to be outdoors, walking along, and be able to know what birds are around you. We all can identify the common birds, the robins, jays, crows, and owls, and of course there are plenty of songs that are familiar because we've heard them a thousand times. And I've taken the time to get a bird call tape or a CD and try to memorize or familiarize myself with the calls, but quite honestly, my attempts have been less than satisfactory. Well, Dr. Krudsma will give you a whole new way of learning to know the bird songs, and trust me, it's a fascinating way to approach the topic. There's a lot more to birds than you may think, and that is a big part of the picture to make learning bird songs, yep, easier and more enjoyable. And a special invitation to those who may not find bird song all that interesting. Give this show a chance. It just may open up a new way of seeing the wonder. I want now to turn to today's special feature, which gives entree to understanding. So now, let's turn to our first feature. A lot of listeners to the Wild Side News have a fascination with birds. Uh, they're a gift. Birds are a gift. They surround us not only with their beauty and the magic of their behavior, but as well with their extraordinary calls that charm us and thrill us and fascinate us. And today I have the great honor of talking with Dr. Donald Krudzma, who is who has written a book recently called The Singing Life of Birds. This is put out by Houghton Mifflin. He has a lot to teach us about bird song because it's a it's a lot more complex than probably most people can even imagine. And he's done a brilliant job of, of telling that story. First of all the complexity of the of the bird song itself, but as well how a person can go out and begin to sensitize themselves to the to the the complexities and the the breadth and scope of bird songs, and therefore help to learn how better to recognize them in the field. Uh, Donald, welcome to the Wild Side News. Thank you, Sydney. You know, let's start out by having you talk about how it is that you got so fascinated with bird song. 
Well, some of the best things in life happen by chance, and you could never recreate them. I was a senior in college and desperate to figure out what I was going to do the rest of my life. A required project for a biology class took me into a marsh, and I monitored migrating birds through the spring. Totally hooked on birds, I quickly took two ornithology classes that summer at the University of Michigan Field Station, and to work off a scholarship, I was told I had to record some birds, so I was weighted down with all this equipment, and there's something magical that happens. When you aim a powerful microphone at a singing bird, put those headphones on, and you hear those songs coming right off the bill of the bird. I got hooked, and, oh, you could say I fell into this black hole of bird song, and I, there's no escape. Well, you've taken it a lot farther than many. A lot of people, for example, think that um, they'll provide a, a collection of bird songs and say, learn these songs, and then you can go out and you can become, you could recognize birds. But you've actually, you've really begun to go into the mind of the bird and the, and the family of the bird, the society of bird, and the community of birds to try to really give a sense of, of how complex these bird calls are. It isn't really just so simple as learning a bird call and imagining you're going to be able to identify a bird, is it? Well, it's so much beyond that. I, you know, many birders love to identify birds by their sounds, and that's, that's fantastic because it lets you know what's going on around you. But what I did as a scientist then for the last 30-some years is explore all the kinds of things that birds do with their sounds. So I wanted to know how some species learn their songs. When do they learn their songs? And from whom do they learn their songs? How many do they learn? And, and why do some birds not learn at all? So I, I have been accused of being a bit obsessive. But having done all this for 30-some years, now I step back and say, wow, let me take a... And having retired from academic science, I feel a little freer to take an overview of this entire field and... And it's, it's kind of a, a gee whiz experience. There's just an incredible variety of things that birds do. First of all, give us some idea of the of the complex nature of a bird's life and their songs, because it is very complex. You start out literally, in many cases, um, you're talking about life in the nest and the relationship of a young bird to its parents, or in specifically a male to its father, where it would have to learn some of these calls. And then what happens as that bird goes on on its own? That's such a fascinating dynamic. What can you share about that? It is. We look at, we look at other humans, and we say, well, there's an individual, there's an individual. But when we look at other bird species, we say, well, there's a robin, and we just equate all robins with each other, but uh, each individual grew up. It was a nestling, it hatched from the egg, and, and you hear a bird singing, and the kind of question I like to ask is a very simple one, is, who are you? Where did you get that song? And you try to take this bird and trace it back, all the way back to the egg, and you realize that there was a lot that went on there, this young bird in the nest was exposed to the songs of the father. Usually the female doesn't sing in North American birds. So the baby heard the father, and then it's fed by the parents until it's maybe 30 days old, and then it leaves home, striking out on its own, searching for a place where it will live, and how that happens depends so much on the species. During this time, the baby hears other birds singing. And the first story in my book is about Buick's wrens, and these young wrens, move maybe a mile or two miles away from home, and then they reject all the songs that they had learned from dad 
and instead replace them with the songs that they learn at this new location where they are going to set up their territory for the rest of their life. So it's really a, a wonderful series of events that leads to a young bird acquiring the specific songs that it needs for that location so that it can function there. You've done some fascinating studies in terms of do, utilizing mist nets to uh, catch birds and then ban them for scientific purposes and applied that knowledge through time to give a real sense of, of the way in which birds migrate through their, through their territory and then also the influences and the changes. And you've been able to go back, for example, from a young bird and made comparisons, audio comparisons, between that bird and its father to really prove what you've just said. And it's fascinating work. Yeah, it's, and I think, Sydney, I agree. There's something about getting to know a whole population of birds as each bird as an individual. You know relationships. You know there's siblings and fathers and mothers, uncles, aunts, grandparents, all in this population. And the way you do that, as you said, is you, you catch these birds, you put unique uh, combinations of colored bands on their legs. I use three bands on these wrens. And then through the binoculars, you can sight them, and you know exactly who is who after you consult your little catalog of, of band combinations and individuals. So you know all these relationships. You follow them throughout the year. You follow them as they move from, as the youngsters move from one place to another. The adults stay in the same place. Once they settle on a place, that's it for life. But those youngsters, you know, during the during months uh, two and three of their life, for example, they're out searching. And then you find them settling down, and you find them babbling away, practicing their songs just like a young human. And you can, and then once they come up with their adult songs, when they're a year old, the songs are fully developed when they're about a year old. Yes, as you said, you, you record all those songs, you make graphs of those songs, you compare those songs with the song of the father, and the songs of the males around where this young bird has settled, and other songs in the whole population too, and. It's a bit like DNA fingerprinting. You can often say, this male learned this song from that particular individual. So it is really satisfying getting to know these birds like this. And then, of course, now we start adding new levels of complexity because that bird that finally sets up, finds its territory, oftentimes as a result of its calling, starts to go through a panoply of different, of different calls and songs that, that begin to tell the story of that, uh, that bird and that place and what it's trying to do. And that gets to be another fascinating realm and by the way one of the difficulties in this particular conversation is the fact that there are so many different birds and they're so unique it's it's almost difficult to generalize so quite honestly of course the answer to that is to go out and, and get the book which is quite a tone but fascinating reading but let's get back to what I was just talking about and that is that now the birds go through a series of different calls for different times of the day, and that it gets very complex. And it's fascinating. Just share with us some of the some of the things that have thrilled you in the, in the years that you've been studying. Well, I, to me, there's nothing like the thrill of hearing birds wake up in the morning, and this this dawn chorus. It oh, it typically starts about an hour before sunrise, and and it lasts for 30, maybe 45 minutes, but if you're not out before sunrise, you've missed it. And the energy that these birds, and this is almost, this is one of the universals, I think. The, the energy that birds put into singing, 
during this very dark period of 15 to 60 minutes before sunrise. The energy is just extraordinary. Just two mornings ago, I went out to the local reserve here. I get up at 3.30 a.m. and I'm standing there waiting because I know these scarlet tanagers are going to start singing about 4.30 a.m. And I have about a half an hour to just thrive and revel in this dawn singing. And then it's basically all over. They take a little break and go to some kind of daytime singing. So it's this, it's this energy at dawn. And it's a never-ending never energy. I love this. We've just begun this celebration of birdsong. When we return, you'll find out how you can come to hear the messages that each bird brings and in the process learn the language of life, which is forever singing when we return here on the Wild Side News. Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. So what's the message? Why do the free birds sing? And what's the best way to listen and learn the language of the birds? That's all coming up when our conversation continues with bird song expert, Dr. Donald Krudzma, as your voice of the earth continues here on the Wild Side News. What better way to spend some time in the wild than learning to read the story of the songbirds? We continue our discussion about the wondrous ways of our winged friends. Oh, the concept of this globe constantly spinning. There's always a point at which the first light is sweeping around the globe. And Oh, how do I begin my book? Always, somewhere, the sun is rising, and always, somewhere, the birds are singing. That's, that's a real pick-me-up if I ever need one. Mm. A spiral of wonder around the world, continuously forever. It is, mm -hmm. beginning 150 million years ago with that mm -hmm. first bird. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of people uh, who possibly have never experienced that. I know a lot of people who haven't. They're not aware of the fact that if you get up truly before sunrise and head out into a forest or almost anywhere, but uh, you know wherever there's a lot of diversity of birds, you're going to experience something that you will not experience any other time, and that, as you say, it is—it's a—it's a screaming, it's a—it's an opera of of uh, joy that is quite extraordinary. Uh, are you able to go on at that time and and um, discern specific bird calls? I, I suppose at this point you can. Yes, I, I would. I would recommend for anyone wandering out there at that time of the day to go with a guide, go with someone who knows these different species and can point out all the kinds of things that are going on. My book is a start because I take various species and explain what they do at dawn, like chipping sparrows. And oh, in the east, we have our eastern wood peewee. And uh, 
But there's nothing like being outside with someone who can say, listen to what that bird over there is doing. And, and there may be 10 or 15, 20 different species within earshot. And, and they're all different, as you say earlier. They're, uh, you know, each one of these species is different. If we find closely related birds, sometimes we can say, well, look, they're doing something similar here, like your western wood peewee and our eastern wood peewee. There's a lot going on that they're doing in a similar way, but, oh, all these different lineages of songbirds, 4,500, each of them doing largely something that they have come up with on their own. Now, in a bit, we're actually going to talk, give some advice on, on how you can go out and particularly utilizing the, the principles that uh, Donald has talked about and, and made so clear in this book about how this can help you to go out and really start to appreciate the things that, that Donald is talking about. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about this this morning bird call because that is unique. Has anyone been able to, I mean, there's many ideas as to why they would be doing that, but what are some of the common concepts as to why this morning bird call is so universal? One of the problems of our, not, one reason we don't know so much about what birds are doing during the dawn chorus is that even scientists have trouble getting up at that time of day to study it. So the ideas that we have are, oh, one, it's, it's well, it's too dark to, to find food at that time of the day, so why not sing? But, but then you could say, well, why not sing at midnight, you know? Uh, so that doesn't really stand up. Uh, Others would say, well, it's calm at that time of day. It's a good time to sing. Yeah, that's true. Uh, my gut feeling, and I think it is of many people who study these birds, is that a lot of energy is put into this dawn course because this is when a lot of the social relationships among the birds are being established. Males competing with each other in some kind of a dominance hierarchy and females undoubtedly listening to what the males are doing, making decisions about who will be the father of their offspring. Because each female, even though she might be paired with another male in what we would call a socially monogamous relationship, each female in so many species that's now been discovered is making decisions beyond with whom to pair that maybe only half the young in her nest might be fathered by her social partner and the other half might be fathered by other males in the neighborhood. And so this leads, you think, to this frenzy of singing where it's a competition for the, the heart of the female. That's a, a theory. I, I, actually, it's a fact. I'd never known. I, I thought uh, perhaps uh, the females were a little more monogamous than that. And, of course, it depends on the species, I'm sure, but uh, I didn't know that. It, it does certainly depend on the species, but the more that are looked up, looked at here, especially in the North Temperate Zone, we can go to the tropics and, and come up with some different patterns, but it's extraordinary. This was discovered some years ago, at least in my mind. I think of a study on red-winged blackbirds. Someone got the bright idea of, of vasectomizing the male red-winged blackbirds, which, of course, renders them sterile. But lo and behold, the females in those territories of those males were still having fertile eggs. And all the DNA fingerprinting that one can now do reveals that when you look at four babies in, for example, a chestnut-sided warbler nest, there's a good chance that two of those babies are going to be fathered not by the male attending the nest, but by other males in the neighborhood. So these females are really listening. At least, what else could all that singing be for? The females have to be listening, making some decisions based on what they're hearing, and that's what leads, I think, to this uh, wonderful dawn course that we can enjoy. 
that's quite an interesting interpretation for sure. There's also this amazing dynamic, the fact that some birds have very simple songs and calls, and then there are some legendary species that that have literally thousands of different calls. Um, give us give us some a heads up on that diversity, some of the some of the color that's involved in in that fact. Yeah. Oh my. The you know some birds we think of as having a single song, like a chipping sparrow, just one song. It's just a series of simple chip 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 chip. chip. Uh, song sparrow. Down in San Diego, I know there are lots of song sparrows. Mm-hmm. The birds have maybe ten different songs apiece. And, and you can listen to a bird. He'll sing one of his forms over and over and over. And if you're attentive, uh, you hear him suddenly switch to another one. And he'll sing that one for a while. And you work your way up the scale. A western marsh wren, 150 songs. Mockingbird, 200. And you get up to some of these uh, thrashers the brown thrasher that we've studied here in the east, you know, maybe 2,000 different songs that it can sing during a couple of hour period. And it might even be improvising and making a lot of those songs up on the spot. It's able to repeat some, so we know that he has a memory. Uh, but he might be making some up on the spot, too. And then there's some birds like cedar waxwings or the crows and jays. We think of them, well, they, they are songbirds. They belong in this group called songbirds yet we don't think of them as having a song. But they get by perfectly fine, of course. So, yeah, tremendous variety of uh, singing behaviors among birds, great range of repertoire sizes. That's all part of the great diversity that we can hear out there. Well, and of course, your book, The Singing Life of Birds, chronicles uh, these different species and analyzes the nature of their repertoire in great detail and off, and also is is embellished by many of your personal stories as you went out and and discover these and it's a it's a it's a great read you don't have to read the whole book but you certainly if you wish to learn a specific bird you can go out identify a bird and then learn at that point and let's let's move now into this aspect and that is what are what are some of the ways in which a person can better learn and appreciate these birds in the field well, I advocate a, an approach that's quite different from what some others do. You can go to the local Audubon store or any bookstore and find a lot of CDs that help you identify species. So the goal then becomes to identify you know, 50 or 60 species that are in one's neighborhood. And I would take a different approach. I say, well, that's okay. That's, you're learning to identify species. But I think there's a shortcut. I think there's a much easier way to come to identify species. And that's to identify with one individual at a time. So I advocate in my book to pull up a chair and sit underneath a robin, or you can listen to the CD, the exercise that I provide. Just listen to one bird and get to know that one bird, and you start to hear things that you never thought possible. And with a robin, why you start to hear the rhythm to the song and the different phrases that he uses and how he puts it all together and you hear the little pauses here and there. People say there are a lot of birds that sound like robins that they confuse with robins. But once you've listened to a robin in your lawn chair for a while, you'll never be confused again. So identifying with an individual robin, in my opinion, leads you to easily identify all other robins and clearly those robin sound alike then. It's, it's as different as night and day. So I think it starts with just picking one bird 
and enjoying the variety of things that it does. And before you know it, uh, a lot of the other things that you hear are going to fall into place. Well, and also, guess what? Um, in that process, life takes on new meaning. You're sitting, you're enjoying life, <laughs> you're connecting, you're learning. And in particular, what always has such meaning to me, and that is that you're really beginning to interpret the the wonder of these creatures, the diversity, the complexity. They're not just simple little animals. What what just makes me so sad, <laughs> I shouldn't impose my my feelings on other people, but what makes me so sad is to read about these accounts of people chasing all over the world to see how many species they can list or to have a big day and see how many species they can list in one day. And if they see one individual, however fleetingly, it counts, and then they don't need to see another one. And just to go through uh, the world of birds in that fashion just leaves me sad because, oh, the, the richness of their lives that is missed in this kind of a, a race. Uh, well, as I said, this just makes me sad. You know, a fun thing might to do might be to have you really just focus on the robin because virtually everybody's heard a robin and help listeners as a as a beginning uh, see how you might suggest they go about becoming familiar and, and learning about the robin from the perspective of its calls and its behaviors and society and, and its mm -hmm. place in the world. Oh, my. This is what I do in that, that uh, second chapter in the book. You I do indeed. Let's take a robin. Uh, because they're everywhere. You look at a field guide, and I think every state in the Union has uh, robins, maybe except Hawaii. But if you pull up a chair and listen to one individual midday, and you start to just try to identify with what this bird is doing, you hear these phrases playing out, and then you hear that why there are several phrases put together, and then there's a slight pause, and then several, three or four more phrases, and a slight pause. So you start to hear the rhythm. And then you realize that, well, these little phrases that are put together, successive ones, are almost always different. It sounds like he has an endless variety of them. But, but then I would say every bird that you listen to has a handle of some kind that you can use to crawl inside his mind. So every once in a while, this bird will sing a particularly unique phrase that you'll say, well, that was unique, I, and then you don't hear it for a while again. And then it comes back. You hear it again. And so the robin is telling you, oh, it's not an endless stream of these whistled carols or phrases I'm singing, but I've got a limited number. And if you listen carefully, you're going to hear the same one recurring every once in a while. So you listen for that one, and maybe there's another one that you can start to hear. And before you know it, you're crawling inside the mind of this robin. You hear how he's using a limited number of phrases, playing them all together in these sequences, pausing. There's this definite rhythm on top of that. And then you realize that with just a little bit of a math, you can figure out how many different phrases he has. All you have to do is count the number of phrases that he sings in a given period of time. And if you have that one little unique phrase that you grab onto every time he sings and count the number of those, why well, suppose he sings a hundred phrases and ten of them are this one particular phrase that you've been able to recognize. Well, the math is quite simple. One hundred divided by ten means that he has about ten different phrases in his repertoire. And initially it sounded like there was just an infinite number. But by that careful listening, 
Now you've crawled inside his mind. You know he has a repertoire size of about 10, and you hear how all this plays out. And this is just the daytime thing, of course. Then there's what he does at dawn that, that gets a little more complicated. Mm-hmm. What are some tools that a person might use to help them in this quest? Well, I guess the first thing I think of is to listen to the CD that I've uh, supplied with my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, there I give a couple of one or two minutes of a Robin song, and, and I show the sonograms for these because if we are... We are seeing animals. We, our world is sensed so much through our eyes. And our ears are pretty undeveloped. And so one of the decisions I made fairly early on in this book is that I'm going to use sonograms. And this sounds like a frightening word. And you open my book and it says, people, well, people tell me they look at these sonograms. I, I prefer to call them musical scores for birdsong. But you look at these musical scores and why it's a bit frightening. But then you play the songs from the CD as you look at these sonograms and you see how the sounds play out in both frequency and time. And you realize that, wow, just looking at these songs helps us to hear so much better. So I'm a strong believer in seeing these songs as we hear them. And once you see them, as you hear them, why you'll never hear them in the same way again. And there's some very simple computer programs, very inexpensive, a $25 program from Cornell, for example, called Raven Light, that uh, anybody can you know, load up onto their computer and take any songs that you take off a CD that you buy or songs that you yourself have recorded and play these into the computer. And you know, just seeing them, if we add that extra sense, we add to our hearing the seeing of the song as we hear it. It burns that song into memory like uh, the ears alone could never accomplish. Well, I'm going to be honest with you, and I've, I've had my own aversion to sonograms because I didn't really quite appreciate their value, and, and you made it absolutely clear to me, particularly as I would put on the CD, and you look at the, the the book and you see the, the track. Yeah, I had to look a little bit for that track number, but it's below each sonogram, and that's that gives you the indication of where that is on the CD as you're looking at, at it in the book. And you follow along as you're hearing these very clear, precise uh, recordings of the birds. And as you say, they take on a, a, a depth, they take on a richness. You can almost begin to chew on them. But here's where I really found the value. It's like one time I went out with a friend of mine, and I was uh, he, he's a poet. And we were on a quest to have people um, tell us poems, and we were collecting them with a recorder. And it turns out very few people really can give you, um, can quote a poem. Many people can't, you know, uh, do, do, do some little nursery rhyme. Most people can maybe do two or three. And I found that really odd. We both did. Now, if I said, could you give me a song, people can literally um, sing many times 20, 50, 100 or more songs with the words and the melody and the whole thing. So there's something about multiplying these these cues that add, helps us to, memor- to remember this. And so what I found, that as, a, as I looked at the sonogram and listened to these, I be- and then, of course, there's the name of a bird that's associated with it, I began to say, aha, uh, a, 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 uh, a pileated woodpecker 
we have this particular rhythm. It's visual, and I can sense it, and I can associate that that visual cue in terms of the song with that particular bird, and suddenly it adds another dimension for me to remember uh, and learn. And uh, the sonograms are, are, are very interesting. Um, I highly recommend people take the time to, to do that, but you don't have to. You make it clear that you do, you know, this isn't something that you, you necessarily want to do. You have to, you can still use the book, but. Yeah, some people, some people look at those sonograms and they get scared. I have a friend here, I have two friends, one who just devoured them and got so excited about them, and another one who said, oh, I can't quite tackle this book. I, those sonograms scare me. So, first person took the second person under wing, and before we knew it, there were two converts. Yes. So, some, sometimes, uh, people need a little help. Well, it's like learning a foreign language. You know, until you get a certain uh, sense of really how it works, mm-hmm. um, it's all confusing and, and gibberish. But I, I made that correlation between the sonogram and the bird and the name of the bird and the call, and um, it's going to be a lot easier for me to go out because I've stumbled with that. I've struggled with uh, memorizing bird calls, and that's something oh, yeah. I'd love to be able to do. Well, this is that's, a terrific aid, yeah. It's difficult, and Sydney, what I'm hoping to do is not only take people to where they enjoy identifying, but, well, there's a wonderful book, uh, and I think it's, the title is Seeing is Forgetting the Name of What You're Seeing. Mm-hmm. And so what I want to do is take people beyond identifying mm-hmm. to where, what would I say, truly hearing a bird is, is forgetting the name of what you're hearing. Mm-hmm. So you go beyond this label to crawling inside the mind of an individual and you just hear all the stuff that it's doing as it plays out its repertoire and how it's interacting with other birds in the area and uh, so it's identifying with that I'm, I'm striving to take people to rather than just identifying but it all comes together you yes you will today hear a bird call or perhaps you can now say I heard a bird today that had a lot to say. When we return, we find out how to really get started seeing into the life of the birds in your world. So stay put. We're about to enter part three of today's special feature, The Singing Life of Birds, on your Voice of the Earth, here on the Wild Side News. Side news, and now Sydney Wildsmith. So, how do you get started? When we return, we talk about just how easy it is to begin learning bird songs and calls on your Voice of the Earth, the Wild Side News.
I can only hope the next time you are outdoors and the birds are talking, that you listen with new eyes. So we hear Dr. Kruzma as he gives you a few more thoughts on the life of birds and song. We're talking with Donald Kruzma, who is uh, uh, the author of The Singing Life of Birds. It's published by Houghton Mifflin. Um, I would have to guess that you've had the opportunity to take a lot of these bird calls and slow them down, because all of a sudden that puts it more in a human dimension. It becomes more of a human voice as opposed to these twitters and, and, and twits and different things, you know. Um, have you had a chance to do much of that, and what have you learned from that? Yes, I, there's some debate as to how well birds can actually hear, but I think they can hear far better than we can. And the proof comes in all the tiny little details in the songs that we can see in sonograms. And we know other birds are learning the details of those songs from each other so that they can hear those little details. And I think hands down, the, the favorite track on the CD for my book is, uh, I think it's track number 70. It's a wood thrush where I say, okay, we're going to slow this song down 10 times. Mm -hmm. And we bring the pitch way down, too, into our best hearing. And when you do that, and the wood thrush is special too because in the second part of its song, and I think thrushes throughout North America, throughout the world, the New World do this, they have two voices that they use simultaneously. They have these two voice boxes. And when you look at the figure in the book and then you play that track on the CD, first you're playing uh, the left track, uh, and you see what the, le the left voice box is doing, and then you see and hear what the right voice box is doing because I'm able to separate these electronically on mm -hmm. my computer. And then you hear these two voices together as the bird actually sings it, but at one-tenth normal speed. And you hear this exquisite harmony of what this woodthrush has put together and what it's not. Well, it's jaw-dropping, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Well, to me, I think we have to appreciate the fact that these animals work in a different realm. I know that we can actually experience that when we go through some sort of uh, emergency crisis and we get the adrenaline rush and time slows down. Uh, if we could just kind of uh, take a little lick on, a, on some adrenaline, we could probably better appreciate these birds because suddenly we would hear them in a whole different time context and as well um, level in terms of the... the, the uh, Bring it more to a human voice. It's um, mm -hmm. it's really very. I, I personally, that's something that in the future I wish to really focus on, because I'm fascinated by the world of animals and and the, the extraordinary, rich lives that they have. It's not for me. Um, it's way more complex than than probably most people want to appreciate. But it's the world that gives me infinite amounts of joy and a, a sense of wonder that uh, keeps me. Um, Keeps me moving forward. Quite honestly, it, it uh, life is a miracle. Well, I hear you, Sydney. It is a miracle, and uh, there's this Zen parable that uh, someone sent to me. He got an early copy of my book. This is Lang Elliott uh, mm -hmm. in Ithaca, New York. He got mm -hmm. an early copy of my book to review, and he said, "You know what your book is all about? Here's this Zen parable." And I paraphrased it a little to make it a little more appropriate for this book, but it goes like this. What's that you said? asked the Zen master. You've heard hundreds of birds sing. Ah, but was it the bird you heard or the label? If you listen to a thrush and hear a thrush, you have not really heard the thrush. But if you listen to a thrush and hear a miracle, then you've heard the thrush. So the world is just full of these miracles, and, 
and like you, what keeps me going is, oh, I have a list of 52 miracles that I want to go study here uh, for this next project I'm putting together. And it took me to this local refuge at you know 4.30 in the morning waiting for these tanagers to wake up because I just had to know what they did at dawn so I could compare exactly what they do at dawn with what they do during later during the day. It's crawling inside the mind of a tanager, however simply, and I know I'd like to go much deeper, but I'm going to be satisfied with just touching the surface and coming up with a whole bunch of questions that someday I'd like to answer. But you're right. Life is just full of miracles. How many species are covered in the book? There are 30 chapters in this this book, The Singing Life of Birds, and a touch on a number of, of other species, too, but... 30 main stories. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, they are stories. That literally, you go out in the field and you experience, uh, and as you can see, Donald is a, is a romantic and a visionary, uh, if I may say so. Uh, you certainly appreciate life in, a, in, a, in, its, in its miraculousness, and that really comes across in your book, the way in which you actually are turning science into poetry and, um, and art. Uh, just as you write, it's uh, and then of course with with the CD to accompany it, it, it adds another dimension as well. Now you also cover some practical things, such as if a person wanted to do this to go out and record their own, um, it isn't really all that difficult and doesn't require doesn't require a lot of investment, or you can go as far as you want. But you also cover that. Why don't you help people understand what they can do if they'd like to perhaps go out and start recording their own? Yeah, you don't need much, and there are all different kinds of uh, recording uh, you know, recorders that one can use. I I advocate, uh, well, and I I warn people in the book. I say you better be careful with the slippery slope because you can get hooked on this, and before you know it, uh, you need more equipment and better equipment and and more expensive, and you need to travel to distant parts of the earth earth to satisfy your curiosity. But but that's all good. I would say you start as simply as possible. Find the cheapest tape recorder you can and a singing bird and, and walk up as close as you can to it with the microphone on and, and capture something on tape. And Oh, it could be as simple as saying to yourself, well, you know, there's a robin singing outside my window. I'm just going to capture him on tape. And, and we know that robin songs don't change all that much from one year to the next, so... I'll be able to know whether it's the same Robin next year if I simply hold on to that tape and, and record them again next year and, and just listen carefully. And so you can ask all these very simple little questions. And using the simplest of tape recorders and microphones, you can answer some of those questions. Now, that might not be enough for someone. And I, Earlier I mentioned that getting this, uh, this Raven light software for, from Cornell lets you see the songs as you hear them. And as you said, Sydney, we're not talking about a major outlay of, of money. We can, uh, oh, I would say, park your car in the garage instead of taking that 300-mile jaunt to wherever and back over a long weekend. You've saved enough money to buy some of the most simple equipment to get going on this. And I spell all this out in, in some detail in the appendix of my book. Of course, one of the more intriguing recording devices are the parabolic microphones and they are powerful if you if you get into this many people are going to want to go in that direction uh, talk about what they do and some of the price ranges mm-hmm. oh 
the old parabolic reflector. It's a bit like a satellite dish. Uh, what it does is take, it's like a big ear. It's a big physical amplifier, actually, because it collects all the sound that hits the surface of this and reflects it back to where the micro, where you place the microphone. So it is a tremendous physical amplifier. And in the book, I tell the story of my friend Julio and I standing on a hillside in Costa Rica. He was aiming his handheld, we call it a shotgun microphone, at a distant bird, and I had my parabola on this bird. And these songs were just booming into my ear. One of the most beautiful singers in Costa Rica. And I knew that Julio was not hearing it as I was. And so I, I slipped my headphones over his ears, so he was hearing what was coming into my parabola, and his face just lit up. And it's what happens when you, it, and it, like I said before, it's like pulling that song right off the bill of the bird, and you hear these intricate little details and the clarity, and it's, uh, you know, it's just spine tingling. They, so, one of the advantages of them as well is the fact that it helps you literally identify precisely where a bird is. It, it is. It, it's a precision instrument. I have a, I have a sight on my parabola. My friends make fun of this sight, my professional friends, but... But uh, I don't think they, well, I think they have a few things to learn. <laughs> but this site, I can, like these tanagers uh, that I'm working with in the dark, I'm writing a story about these tanagers, but I never saw them. They were way up in the canopy, in the dark, and I move this parabola left to right, and I find the loudest point left to right, and then I say, stop there, and then mm-hmm. we sing again, I move it up and down, and where it's loudest to my ears, that site is pointing at the, you know, that little area up in the tree where I know he's singing. And it's that precise. Uh, and and also, nicely, because it does record the sounds coming from that little area, all the other sounds coming from the left and the right, they're minimized in your recording. So mm-hmm. it really focuses on that that singing bird wherever it's, uh, the parabola is pointed. If you had a little laser light on that, you could literally point it right at the bird because it's absolutely precise. Yeah, it's, they're an amazing tool. What would people have to, um, where can they get these things, and uh, uh, what kind of prices would they expect to pay? Oh, I there's a wonderful website, um, and it's, it's in my book. It's, it's, one could do a Google search on the fellow's name, Greg Kunkel. K-U-N-K-E-L, and you'd come up with this website, and it's a website that's dedicated to recording birds in the cheapest way possible. Mm-hmm. And I love that for starters. Mm-hmm. Like Edmund Scientific, I think, has some very inexpensive parabolas, mm-hmm. and you could fashion your own little hardware to hold a microphone at the focal point. Uh, so this could be done very inexpensively. Mm-hmm. If someone says, well, you know, I'd like to just go buy a good one off the shelf someplace. And my favorite is one that I buy from Sweden. It's a parabola. It's about 24 inches across. I can roll it up and put it in my shirt sleeve and travel on airplanes. Just the parabola itself is less than $100. But then I say, oh, I want that stereo microphone because it gives such a richness to the recording. It lets me focus on that bird. But then because there are two microphones here at the focal point, I hear the birds off to the left and the birds to the right. It gives me that stereo sound effect. Those are a little over $1,000. But you can get by very cheaply or you can indulge yourself and say, you know, I'm just going to go get something good right away. We're talking with Donald Kruzma, 
who is the author of The Singing Life of Birds. Um, this is a great book. Uh, it's, it's, I, I don't know that I, I could sit down and read this all the way through. It may take a, quite a while because it's a huge book. Many people may. But I do enjoy just going through finding a bird that perhaps I've run across recently and then learning. You learn so much about the bird's life from the songs and the work that Donald has done in, in really spending time, as he's discussed with us, coming to know these animals. Donald, are you going to be traveling around on a book tour or anything like that? Oh, I'm, I travel here and there a bit. I'll be out in Portland and Seattle over the weekend. And after that, little events here and there, mm-hmm. but nothing uh, nothing major and concerted uh, for the rest of the year. There was a period mid-April to mid-May where I was, I seemed I was doing something every day, but mm-hmm. uh, things have slowed down just a little. Mm-hmm. Now, if people want to find out more about your work, where can they do so? Well, I, I have a website for this book. Uh, it's thesinginglifeofbirds.com. And about, oh, the first half of the reviews and all I've put on this website. Uh, and I, ha- I can't keep up, though. Uh, so much good stuff has been happening. For example, uh, fairly recently, National Public Radio had a wonderful piece called Radio Expeditions on mm-hmm. our bicycle trip that my son and I took cross-country. We rode our bikes from Virginia to, to Oregon, 4,500 miles, 10 weeks, recording not only birds but people along the way because people dialects are just as interesting as bird song dialects. Fascinating. And so you could go to uh, the website for Radio Expeditions or the website for Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Uh, but I'm going to have to augment this website for the thesinginglifeofbirds.com because so much more good stuff has been happening over the, the month or so since I updated it. Well, Donald, I want to thank you so much for just barely touching, really, the, the nature of, uh, of your work, but sharing so much in that process. I hope we have a chance to talk again on the Wild Side News, and uh, let's keep in touch. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Sydney. A real pleasure. I'll be listening in a whole new way. And hopefully you too will find today's show a good excuse to spend more time with the wild creatures. Things are changing quickly on planet Earth. Since they are changing anyway, there's no better time than now to push for a future that brings we and the wild creatures together. This is Sidney Wildsmith thanking you for listening and inviting you to listen each Thursday or anytime on the archives to your very own voice of the earth here on the wild side news